Hi, I'm an inexplicable Tom Hiddleston ass shot, Taylor. And I'm all the acclaim this movie deserved and didn't fucking get, Jemmy. And this is The Final Girl Files. This week, and I'm very excited to say it, we watched Crimson Peak, directed by Guillermo del Toro, starring Mia Wasikowska, Jessica Chastain, Tom Hiddleston, and Charlie Hunan. I fucking love this movie. (laughs) Uh, And we're not here alone to discuss it. We have a guest with us today. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, I am a dead butterfly pressed homoerotically against the cheek of my enemy, Rhea. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Sorry. Completely perfect. Best movie. It's the best movie. It is the best movie. (laughs) And I'm so excited that you're here because I know when we were discussing this podcast, like when it was in its infancy, I was like, I would love to do a Crimson Peak episode and I'd also love to have Rhea do it. And I know when I approached you, I was like, well, usually we have our guests pick the movies, but if you want to do Crimson Peak, I would love that. I would have chosen Crimson Peak anyway. (laughs) It would have been an absolute travesty if we had had you on and not done a gothic horror something or other. If not Crimson Peak, then something sort of along those lines. Truly. Like, definitely a Del Toro movie. Full stop. Yeah, I'm... I'm afraid I have to warn you, I will be talking about another Guillermo del Toro movie. (laughs) Oh, Rhea, how horrible. (laughs) But yeah, definitely. All right, so uh, Rhea, you're our guest, so I'll ask you this first. Memories with this movie? Um, You know, I genuinely don't remember the first time I watched it, um, probably because it, like all of Guillermo del Toro's work, kind of feels like just a manifestation of the inside of my brain. So this <laughs> this film has just been with me <laughs> long before it existed. It sprang um, into your life like fully formed. Yes. <laughs> Out of the head of Guillermo del Toro, like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I'm sure I watched it as soon as it came out because I remember being very excited to hear about it. Um, and then I just watched it obsessively every couple months since then. <laughs> this, that's the way that it was meant to be consumed. Yes. Truly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taylor, I know, I don't know your memories with this movie, but I know that this time specifically you had a bit of an experience watching it. So, uh, if you could just enlighten both Rhea and our audience, because I already oh. know this story. Oh boy. I, so me and my sister, uh, were house sitting for a family friend of ours. So we were alone in this, like, big house, like, and we were like, we don't have anything to do. So I said to her, I was like, well, I have to watch this movie for the podcast, and I don't think you've ever seen it. Like, do you want to watch Crimson Peak with me? And not only had she never seen this movie, she had never heard of this movie. (gasps) Which which doesn't surprise me, because, again, we'll probably talk later about how terrible the marketing for this movie was, but... Oh, I have many thoughts on that. Mm. But anyway, she had never so much as heard of this movie, so she was going in not only, like, blind, but, like, completely blind. And she spent the first, like, half of this movie, like, just cooing over um, Edith and Thomas, and... Oh, no. She... (laughs) Yeah. She was just like, oh, my God, they're so cute. Oh, my God. Like, she was in full, like... Like she, it was she. She had literally at one point said, "This is just like Bridgerton." <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry. 
I just remember getting that text and being like, oh god, no, because Taylor messaged me, like, my sister, she just said it's just, like, Bridgerton, and I just, like, if, I don't know how you straight face that, because if I heard that while watching Crimson Peak, I think I'd just, like, lose it entirely. Like, she spent most of this movie thinking, like, this is a movie about, like, a wholesome couple that live in a haunted house. She thought it was The Conjuring! Like, yeah, she she literally thought that, like, this was a movie about, like, evil ghosts in a big house terrorizing just, like, a nice couple. And that, like, yeah, this, after a while she was kind of like, oh, the sister's kind of sus. But she was just like, (laughs) man, like, Tom Hiddleston's handsome face blinded her to, like, a lot of the foreshadowing that happened in this movie. I think kind of sus is my favorite way to describe Lucille. (laughs) (laughs) She literally looked at me and that, that was the exact sentence that came out of her mouth she goes well that this is this sister's kind of sus also i'm just gonna get it out of the way really quick this movie incredibly bizarre to be watching like in the middle of an mcu kick yeah oh i'm sorry for you particularly right after like watching the entirety of the loki show it's really funny actually because i know tom hiddleston best as thomas sharp like i like for a while i wasn't a big mcu person but like lol <laughs> but i know him best as thomas sharp so i'm pretty sure like while everyone else was watching this movie and being like oh that's loki i was watching loki being like oh that's thomas sharp <laughs> yeah i think this may be the only thing i've seen no i have seen the first thor i forgot but <laughs> but this is the main thing i associate him with too mm-hmm Anyway, I just thought it was incredibly funny that she just did not see any of it coming because she was so kind of invested in this idea of it being just like a very wholesome love story that happened to be like have ghosts in it. And I thought, oh, I literally kept sending Jemmy the fucking like, honey, you've got a big story coming. (laughs) That was the vibe. Oh, Oh, it was so funny. I love you, Autumn. (laughs) (laughs) You're my favorite person to watch movies with. <laughs> She's coming on the time. podcast at some point. I love showing her movies and just having her be completely blindsided by them. I actually also had two distinct, like, oh god, this is, no, I just realized this is a bad uh, bad phrasing to use for this movie, but I did have two distinct sibling experiences with this movie. <laughs> oh no. Oh, damn Not it. like that! Sure. Not a sharp experience. Good but um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could ask Taylor to edit that out, but I know she won't. I won't. <laughs> um, no, the first time I saw this in theaters, it was, I think, me, my brother Jamie, his boyfriend at the time, and our, like, mutual friend. And me and the mutual friend were, like, super into it, of course, because, like, from the minute I saw the first trailer for this movie, I was like, oh, Guillermo made this for me. Mm-hmm. Um... So we were both super into it. And then, like, I would look over every couple of minutes and, like, Jamie and his boyfriend were on their phones. And I'm like, because we we sit, like, way in the back. So, like, it wasn't bothering anyone that they were on their phones. But, like, I was so, like, appalled that they were doing this. And I keep trying to, I keep trying to get Jamie to give this movie another go because he didn't like it when it came out. But I feel like he kind of fell into the trap that a lot of people do with this movie in assuming it's just going to be, like, a straight up horror Uh, yeah i think the fact that autumn had never even heard of the movie like helped in her favor because i think that if she had gone in thinking it was going to be scary she wouldn't have liked it right 
And also, I, I, I think it's very funny that you said that Jamie kept looking at his phone because one thing that Autumn kept saying, especially when we got home yesterday and we were telling our mom about the movie, is that Autumn goes, I didn't look at my phone one time. And like, <laughs> Autumn has ADHD. So like, looking at her phone during movies is kind of just how she interacts with movies. <laughs> like, yeah. right. like, even movies she likes, she'll be like glancing at her phone because that's just how her attention span is. She did not look at her phone at all. She was enthralled. I was very happy about it. Anyway, what happened when Jace saw this movie? I'm excited to hear. So I was deeply, like, I was kind of reluctant to take Jace to this movie because Jamie had not liked it so much. So, you know, I think we went and we saw it. And watching Jace watch this movie was one of the greatest movie theater experiences I've ever had. (laughs) Because he was just so reactive. Like, the, the fucking Thomas and Lucille, like, I think he legitimately gasped when that reveal happened. It was so good. <laughs> um, and also, I just want to add, because I'd be extremely remiss not to add this, um, me and my friend Meeks had very like differing opinions leading up to this movie, because she was like, oh, it's a Guillermo del Toro movie. I, re- you know, I really like him, but I'm not super into the whole gothic aesthetic. And then there's me, who's like, this is for me. This movie is for me. Um, but we both we both ended up like super loving this movie, and like I'm about to like show my my nerd hand, but I do a lot of like online role playing <laughs> as a hobby, and I wrote Edith for like the longest time, and she wrote Lucille, and we just kind of it was just such a whole big like part of our lives for a long time, and I just wanted to mention that because I love her, and I know she's gonna listen to this episode. Hi, Meeks. <laughs> That's incredibly wholesome. I love that for you. Mm-hmm. All right. So, like, where to start? Yeah, like, I don't even know where to, like, like, I'm looking through my notes and I'm just like, I don't even know which point to, like, start with. Could we maybe start with addressing the gothic versus a horror film? We absolutely can. <laughs> um. So I tragically do not have a blu-ray player and the crimson peak director's commentary is only on blu-ray but what i do have is um (laughs) the the other film that i alluded to um guillermo del toro's first gothic movie the devil's backbone i was so hoping that when you said you were (laughs) going to talk about another del toro movie that you were going to say the devil's backbone because i love that movie oh it's so good and like in, in the director's commentary on that, he talks a lot about the gothic um, as a genre and, like, the specific beats uh, that he was trying to hit with The Devil's Backbone. And that was, like, a full decade before Crimson Peak. So, like, every time I listen to that commentary, I'm just like, I'm so happy that you got to do Crimson Peak because it was clearly such a passion project. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, the, the gothic, like, as a genre... Um, encompasses basically two main branches, um, which is there is gothic horror, uh, which I would argue, like he defines the other, uh, the devil's backbone as the other main branch, gothic romance. But I think it has elements of both gothic horror and gothic romance, whereas Crimson Peak is just a textbook gothic romance. It is not a horror. It is a gothic romance. Um, and like the the gothic as an umbrella term is famously impossible to define but my best stab at it 
is that it's media that explores the occupation and embodiment of liminal spaces and identities. Um, and then Guillermo del Toro defines it in the Devil's Backbone commentary that uh, much more poetically, the Gothic is a reaction to reason. It's the triumph of emotion over reason. Um, and like, I think looking at it from a horror perspective is just useless. Like there's nothing in this film <laughs> that is meant to be horrifying in the sense that we think of horror movies. This is the triumph of emotion and the unexplainable over reason because like when the gothic started it was um around the same time as the enlightenment so there was a lot of thinking around like science is the reason for everything like everything is scientifically explainable um like religion and magic and superstition and the supernatural all of that is fake everything is science and the gothic kind of emerges as a reaction to that like no there are things in this world that are beautiful and magical and like science can't explain not that science isn't beautiful i don't mean to say that but like the the gothic is basically a celebration of these things that are like outside of the norm outside of the established societal stuff <laughs> um <laughs> i said all these long words and then i come up with stuff but um that's okay that's this podcast in a nutshell yeah. So. <laughs> yeah that's that's me as an academic like i would be writing these papers and be like all of this really well thought out stuff and then like um that's my paper i'm <laughs> a please <laughs> isn't that how we all write conclusions on essays come on yeah, basically. But like that kind of ties in, I think, to um, why this film was not a commercial success, because almost by definition, the Gothic cannot be a commercial success because it is a reaction to commercially successful and acceptable things. So like trying to say that this isn't Gothic, trying to say that it's just a straight horror movie was never going to work mm -hmm. because the Gothic is not about that. Team. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the podcast, everyone. <laughs> um, it's funny that you bring up the commentary because uh, I do have a Blu-ray player. Do bleh. I do have a Blu-ray player, if I can say it out loud. Um, and I do have not only the Blu-ray of Crimson Peak, but like not to flex, I did find like that fancy edition release that they put out like a couple years ago at an FYE, and I did buy it. <laughs> And Love I did listen you. to most of the commentary, most of the commentary. And uh, Del Toro made a, I mean, obviously throughout the entire commentary, he continues to make the point that this is a gothic romance. That is the genre that he is trying to do. He's not trying to do a horror movie. Yeah. Um, and he posited that he is trying to reverse a lot of gothic romance tropes while also keeping them uh, recognizable, which I think is a really interesting way to look at this movie. That is fascinating. I love the I, idea of taking tropes and kind of flipping them on their head, but not in a, like, I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot of the time um, 
when someone jumps into a genre and they say something like, well, my goal was to turn a lot of the tropes on its head. Like you, a lot of the times it just comes off as like, I'm better than these old books or movies, yeah, you know? Right. And that's so not what Del Toro is doing, even though he's mm-hmm. subverting a lot of things, you can still tell that he has so much love for this genre, which is yeah. something that I love about this movie. It's such like a, like a, like a tribute to everything about the Gothic that he loves. Yeah, absolutely. I love how much, like, in all of his work, you can see, like, the passion for what he's doing. Oh, absolutely. Every movie he does, he absolutely loves everything he's doing. And that's why his commentaries are so much fun, too, because he just gets to nerd out about all the stuff he loves. And it's fantastic. If anyone has ever seen pictures of Guillermo del Toro's house. Yes. um, I want to live in that (laughs) house. I want that house. Pause this podcast right now and look up what this man's house looks like and tell me that he is not like just like a huge nerd, just like all of us. It's great. <laughs> he has a I, wax. He has like wax figures just like in his house. It's fucking <laughs> awesome. Oh, it's wonderful. His He's got a big perfect. like Frankenstein head above his yeah. stairs. He has a whole room devoted to the haunted mansion. Like we love this man. <laughs> Speaking of also just want to say to everyone who wanted Guillermo del Toro's haunted mansion movie and maligned this movie how the fuck does it feel to be your own worst enemy right seriously this is just an r-rated haunted mansion movie like it really is (laughs) it really is did you know um the not the first the very first scene in the graveyard but the first scene like in the cushing household when little baby edith goes out into the hallway that hallway is wallpapered with the same wallpaper as not like the demon eye wallpaper but the same wallpaper as the haunted mansion foyer Oh, shut up. That's oh. so cool. I oh, I that. just love Guillermo del Toro. I love him. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to have to watch it again immediately and look for that. Oh man, what a tragedy. <laughs> oh, I know. What a hardship for me. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart that I knew I was going to love this movie when I saw that the main character's last name was Cushing. Yes. <laughs> That's when I knew that this movie was made for me. Did you know? I know we know Edith is named after after Peter Cushing. The uh, commentary also says that she was named after novelist Edith Wharton. So that's mm-hmm. her whole her whole name is a tribute to various things. Yeah, I love Edith. By the way, I, I mean I did just say I role played her for years, but I fucking love Edith so much. We Edith stand is fantastic. Like, so hard. We stand. and it's it's funny because I. Going into this, the only thing, I, the only other thing that I had seen my uh, Mia Wasikowska in was the 2020, not the 2020, fuck, <laughs> let me try that again, uh, was the 2010 Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland, which unfortunately I am a stand of, and I understand that this may change your opinion of me as a person, but... Um, but I remember Listen, you know how I feel about that movie, and you know that I also think it goes hard, so like... I genuinely liked that movie. It's good. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Anyway, I if we start talking about that movie, I'm never going to shut up. So, <laughs> but I saw her in that and I know that a lot of criticism of her performance was I mean, I know she got a lot of criticism for her performance. So, I was a little bit worried going into this because I was like, "Oh god, are they going to like and I didn't think her performance in that was bad at all." Mm-hmm. But I was going into this like, "Oh god, are people going to criticize her for not being for not acting well in this movie uh turns out she did a fucking amazing job in this movie and absolutely holds her own against everyone else so good for her 
Was this, does anyone recall if this was before or after she was in Jane Eyre? Um, this was when, after, I think, because Jane Eyre okay. was 2012, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. That's or 2011. Uh, I did not. That. I did not actually see Jane Eyre because I hate Jane Eyre. Um, oh, Jane Eyre was but, 2011, so this was after. Okay. Cool. Um, but I think it's interesting that he said he was um, trying to subvert um, like gothic romance tropes because to me it seems like specifically what he's subverting is Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I never thought about that, but like that's so true. Yeah, because- actually. I have something to point out about this, but Rhea, oh, please go, go on. It. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I was just going to say that, like, Lucille is basically Bertha if she had a knife. Like, this is Bertha's yeah. revenge. Yeah. And I just love it. <laughs> Justice for Bertha. Bertha writes. Please. <laughs> please what? go on, though. <laughs> um, In the scene after Edith gets Thomas's letter and he, like, finds her in the hotel, I think it is what he's saying to her as he's like quote unquote confessing his love because at this point he's very much not Uh um is just a paraphrasing of like i think something and i haven't read jane Eyre because i'm a bad literature person but no you're valid don't read it thank you um (laughs) i think i had i think i like okay no i'm not gonna not gonna anyway it's a paraphrasing of something that mr rochester says to jane Eyre in Jane Eyre. (laughs) Says to Jane in Jane Eyre. Yes, Um, it is. And Del Toro points this out because he's like, if you know gothic, like, literature, you know that Edith would have read Jane Eyre and been familiar with it. So, like, is Thomas manipulating her in this moment? The answer is yes. Uh, And it's it's just something else that sort of paints that uncertainty that even exists early on between the two of them. Yeah, and, like, positioning... Thomas as the Mr. Rochester of that scene is perfect because Rochester fucking sucks. Yep. And that's that's the hill I will die on. He sucks. And like like I loved Jane Eyre right until the end, basically. Um yeah. so I guess uh spoilers for uh, Jane Eyre if <laughs> if that's a, an issue people have. But like Rochester sucks. And it turns out Thomas is not great either. Um so there's that parallel. That's an incredible understatement. <laughs> Truly. But, like, of course, you know there were people out there who were like, oh, no, Thomas did nothing wrong. Uh, Lucille did it all. Like, there are people up. to this day that say Mr. Rochester did nothing wrong. And that are, like, constantly That's debating so dark-sided. on... Uh, the things I see on Twitter, Taylor. Uh, <laughs> That's so evil. I'm sorry. And, like, oh Wait, while God. we're discussing evil things, I want I can't, like, not talk about the novelization of this Oh, oh my fucking god. Can you talk for a little bit about the novelization of this movie, Jemmy? Because I absolutely will. So um, real ones who followed me on Tumblr back in like 2017, 2016 <laughs> will remember that I did in fact pick up the novelization of this book. Um this movie, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and uh I picked it up. I was like, well, I've heard this is bad, but maybe it has some redeeming qualities. And then I read like the first page and like if you're writing a Crimson Peak novelization, like Crimson Peak, mm-hmm. this movie with like the most incredible production design and like overwrought like everything. If I'm reading a novelization of a Crimson of Crimson Peak and I'm like this is way too fucking flowery, like you have a problem. Yeah. You have a fucking problem. Um but what how I like to describe the novelization to people, which by the way, if you are at all thinking about reading the novelization of this movie, don't. 
don't waste don't your time. It. It's horrible. Don't do it. But I describe it. I describe it as like what you would think Crimson Peak was from a very bad description. <laughs> In that it takes all the nuance that Del Toro wrote into his characters and like just completely removes it. Like. Thomas is a sad boy who did nothing wrong. Edith is fawning over him at like every minute, like every page, like from the moment he shows up, which is not at all what happens in the movie. And Lucille is just like evil rather than being like sympathetic. And (sighs) this book was very obviously written by a woman who really liked the Avengers and specifically Loki. (laughs) She was written by a Loki person. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. They went into the Loki X reader tag on AO3 and (laughs) contacted the first person. (laughs) Truly. I have been dealt 2D4 psychic damage. (laughs) Taylor, I'm going to tell you, honest to God and without a shred of irony, that wouldn't surprise me. I know. You know what um you know what cracks me up about like and it's so funny because like we we were talking about the novelization a little while back and so like when I went back and I watched the movie I was specifically thinking about the scene where Edith and Thomas uh meet for the first time and like she's so deeply unimpressed by him. Oh yeah. <laughs> And in the book, she's just immediately, like, fawning over him and being like, oh, my God, this handsome rich man thinks my novel is good. <laughs> yeah, there's just no progression. It's just immediate, like, oh, Tom Hiddleston fan self. Can I just say, I and I said this to you last night, Jemmy, I was shocked. I kind of forgot how much Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain look alike. <laughs> they really do. Mm-hmm. Like, they could, they're not, they're not twins, but, like, they, they definitely look related. The close-up shots of their eyes during that one scene towards the end, yeah. I was like, fuck, like, they could be, they, they look like siblings. It was excellent casting all around, I think. Mm, for sure. This movie is so well cast. We do have proof that we're not living in the darkest timeline, because in the darkest timeline, we would have the version of this movie that ex- apparently was supposed to exist with Benedict Cumberbatch and Emma Stone. Ah! <laughs> yeah. No! I think that was like the that was either like the original casting or like people who were on like a list or something I can't remember exactly what it was but I remember reading that somewhere and being like oh god they were probably on the short list for this movie but also like yeah um every time I remember that that almost happened literally 2d4 psychic psychic damage like (laughs) it it hurts that happened in the same universe where Tom Hiddleston got cast as Pennywise (laughs) ah (laughs) Okay, that I didn't know, and now that's going to be a nightmare that I have tonight. You're welcome. (laughs) As horny as people are for Pennywise now, can you imagine? (laughs) It would be apocalyptic. Like, I think it would literally bring about the end times. I think Tumblr would have, like, residual radiation. Like, you couldn't go (laughs) on. It would be like like a fucking radioactive zone. It would just be Chernobyl. Like, (laughs) you typed, you start to type Tumblr into your browser and, like, limbs just start falling off. (laughs) You start turning green. Oh, God. Um, 
Actually, let me just lead from the novelization into another point of discussion, because one of the things that really made me mad in the novelization was that the author made Edith and Alan like an endgame ship. Boo, we hate your pussy. Which which <laughs> leads me to believe that Guillermo del Toro had no say in the novelization, because in the commentary, he makes an incredibly, like distinct point to be like Edith does not fall in love with Alan this was very important to me that Edith does not fall in love with Alan and I kind of love that I really appreciate when he does things like that because he talks about it in the Pacific Rim uh, Mm -hmm. director's commentary as well where like he did not want and it's Charlie Hunnam again so Mm -hmm. uh, sorry to him I guess (laughs) Um, but I know uh, one one day I want Charlie Hunnam to play an actual love interest in a Del Toro movie because he deserves (laughs) poor Um, guy. But yeah, he didn't want that to happen with Raleigh and Mako at the end of Pacific Rim either. He said it was very important to him that their narrative is not a romantic arc. It is just two people who (laughs) care about each other. And like, Alan obviously cares about Edith and Edith cares about him too. That doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be romantic. They can just be people who care about each other. And I love that theme that Del Toro does. So I started doing, actually, it's funny that you bring this up, Jemmy, because I started doing some, like, preliminary Googling about this movie before I even watched it. Uh And um, the, like, Google summary for this movie that comes up when you Google it is literally, like, a woman is torn between the love of her childhood best friend and a mysterious baronet. And I was like, Uh, what? 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 (laughs) I was like, who wrote that plot summary? Hey, people still like the whole Twilight love triangle thing, right? Again, it's just this fucking mismarketing that happens every time with this movie. Like, that's just straight up not the plot. (laughs) Yeah. It's so weird. I was like, huh? Excuse me? (sighs) God bless um, people who saw this movie uh, despite the fact that um, nobody at the studio knew how to fucking advertise it. (laughs) Truly. Yeah, the the gothic bitches knew. We just knew. We knew. I remember in 2015, like, every trailer for this movie was just, like, the ghost, like, coming down the hallway with, like, a a stupid jump scare added Mm -hmm. in. And I was like, oh, this looks kind of scary. No. (laughs) No, 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 no. Although I will say, uh, shout out to uh, Javier Botet and uh, Doug Jones, who play the the ghosts in this movie. The two of them play all of the ghosts. Our SFX kings. Doug Jones in, like, Doug Jones always, but especially in Guillermo del Toro films. Like, Mm -hmm. he's just incredible. And I love, I love how much Guillermo loves him. Truly. I, I listened to an interview with Doug Jones. Um, and he was talking about the uh, Haunted Mansion m- nebulous idea. Um, right. And and basically, um, the only reason I still think it may eventually happen is because Doug Jones wants it to happen so badly. And <laughs> Guillermo loves Doug. So I feel like if it happens, it's going to be because Guillermo wants to make Doug Jones happy. And that's valid. Guillermo, just let him play the Hatbox Ghost. Let him do it. Yeah, like, I don't give a shit about the Hatbox Ghost, which you know, Jemmy. But like, of course, because I also don't give a shit about the Hatbox Ghost. Yeah, but like, if Doug Jones wants to be the Hatbox Ghost in a Guillermo del Toro Haunted Mansion film, I say we let him. I agree. Wholeheartedly. 
I simply think that he should be allowed to play whatever role he wants forever, and yes, that. It's really yes. funny that you bring up the ghosts because I know like a James Wan thing happened with the ghosts because like every time there's like a new Conjuring movie that comes out, everyone like bitches in the comments about the use of CGI and then James Wan has to like go on Twitter or Instagram and be like, no guys, here's the practical costume we used for this like effect. Uh-huh. Here, like here it is. It was practical. Um, and apparently a lot of people were complaining that the ghosts in Crimson Peak were CGI, but, like, they weren't. They just had, like, CGI additions to them. Like, they just Mm -hmm. made them transparent and had, like, little ethereal wisps coming off of them. But, like, they were were people in costume. Yeah. Um, could I talk a little bit about the devil's backbone again? Absolutely. Um, because, uh, the ghost in the devil's backbone... Um, Guillermo del Toro really, really fought for the way that that ghost is depicted. Uh, and like, you can, I watched them back to back. So I, you could immediately pick up where the similarities in the ghost design are. Mm -hmm. And knowing how hard he had to fight for that the first time, I'm just so delighted that he got to use it again. Um, but what the, the two main things with the ghost in the devil's backbone are, um, the okay this is spoilers for the devil's backbone kind of but you should still watch it even if this spoils it for you because it's so good but um the the ghost is a child who um drowned who was killed in a place with water and when his ghost appears there's a little bit of blood that like kind of wavers in the air like coming from his head and it looks like even though he appears above water like just on the ground like it looks like the blood is like seeping into the water above him even though he's not in water Mm -hmm. um and i noticed that in the crimson peak ghosts that you get like especially the one in the bathtub i think is when it's most visible that Mm -hmm. like you get blood coming off the wound in the head floating up like it's in water and it it is so beautiful and it made sense in the devil's backbone, like it kind of also makes sense for because it's um the sharps mother uh in crimson peak and she was killed in the bathtub but like she she wasn't floating in a pool the same way that santi in the devil's backbone was but it's still i love that he got to use that again because it's such a beautiful image mm-hmm. um and then the other thing with the ghost in devil's backbone is he wanted it to look like a broken porcelain doll and the special effects people were like, that's ridiculous that nobody's going to get why you're doing that. That's stupid. And he's like, no, I need you to understand how fragile this child was. And I need this to come through in the design. And like seeing Thomas at the end, basically a picture perfect replica of that broken porcelain doll of Santi in The Devil's Backbone. Like, it just made me so happy to see it because it's, like, Thomas is, like, Thomas sucks. Like, I'll just, Thomas sucks. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But he's so interesting and so fragile. And, like, it is the great tragedy of his character that he wants things to be better, but he is not strong enough to do what needs to be done to make them better. And to convey that fragility with the same imagery that he did in the devil's backbone. I just, I love Guillermo del Toro so much. <laughs> Sorry. I just got like chills a little because like ad verbatim, I think del Toro 
like said that about Thomas in the commentary. See, he's in my brain. He is. <laughs> Guillermo, if you're listening, I am available for hire. Please let me work for you. Please hire Rhea. <laughs> Please hire me. We think the same anyway. Just just let me let me work on your films. We'll have a great time. One, you know, speaking of Thomas's ghost at the end, one thing that I love is the image of Edith reaching out and like you think she's gonna go to like touch his face, but she just kind of like kind of puts her fingers in the blood that's coming off of his wound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I for uh, for some reason I just love that. Like you, like I don't know, I don't know why I love it. I don't have the thinky thoughts to like articulate it, but I don't. It's so good. The it's way she so... just like she's like I need to touch it now mm-hmm. and I'm like girl I get it because if I was also like two feet from a ghost I would also be like I want to touch the weird blood that's coming off of your face <laughs> and floating into the sky right now. It's so gentle I think and like mm-hmm. it's so jarring in that moment because it's been so beautifully and deliciously violent up to that point. Yeah like and- we literally just saw Lucille uh, not Lucille Edith like s- kill Lucille by whacking her over the head with a shovel shovel. oh my god it's so crazy (laughs) and getting her like joss whedon quip in afterwards yeah she deserves to have joss whedon quips okay yeah she does can do what she wants she can absolutely (laughs) but yeah it's it's just i I think it is just that it's so jarring Mm -hmm. in that moment that it's it just strikes you and it's just so beautifully done. It was so well acted. It was so well put together from everyone involved. This is the best movie. People it's who really rules, guys. What's so good to me too is like how the violence in this movie, like it is not frequent, but when it happens, it is so intense. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yes. Like this isn't a movie that's just like start to finish bloody, but like when violence does happen, like there are no, there is no cutting away. There is like, nope, we're just mm-hmm. going to show you a man having his head bashed into a sink until it literally, what is it with us watching movies where people's heads get split open? Like Midsummer last time and then Damn. <laughs> Crimson Peak this time. <laughs> um, but yeah. Oh my God. Uh, Edith's father's death is so intense and like no one ever sees it coming. Mm-hmm. I love that scene because it is like so specifically shot around the razor that he's holding that yes. Gable does this incredible misdirection. So yeah. that you think the whole time that he yep, he's gonna get his throat cut open with the with the razor. But nope, Lucille comes in and she grabs his head and she just fucking bashes it against the sink until the sink itself breaks. And it's so fucked ooh, up. God. God, good for Lucille. Like that's that's <laughs> awful and all, but like God, good for her. It's awful, but she's allowed to do it. <laughs> I love how she gets to like having somebody, you know, that feminine be that violent is just mm-hmm. so delicious. It's just fantastic. And I, I love, love when women are fucking insane. Yeah, I just like, do. <laughs> The the um near the end where she is just like covered in blood and shrieking and hissing and running after Edith with a knife. Like my only notes on that are um oh it's on the next page. Hold on. Yeah, it's I have nothing to say about this. It's just the most fun thing I've ever seen. It's such a good per- <laughs> Jessica Chastain's whole performance in this movie is nothing short of incredible. She should have gotten an mm-hmm. Oscar 
fuck everyone else. <laughs> I would yeah. also like to say shout out to Thomas getting stabbed in the face. Mm-hmm. With the with the single bloody tear. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> oh, the melodrama is so delicious. Hello, friends. Unfortunately, this was the point at which my Taylor's microphone stopped working. Yes, I was lost from the call. There was a big kerfuffle trying to get me back. I tried to edit the podcast in a way which would disguise this fact, but found it to be basically impossible to do so. So I'm inserting this wonderful little audio message just to clarify that there is, in fact, an actual reason why we randomly switched topics and... It's not just because we had no idea what we're, what we were doing. So, without uh, further ado, let's continue on to the rest of the podcast with the knowledge that we were rudely interrupted by my MacBook and my Blue Yeti not wanting to cooperate with each other. Thank you for understanding. All right, we're back. <laughs> It's fine. Nothing happened. Everything is fine. We're continuing the conversation, the same place we left off. Yes. There was no break in conversation. I don't know what you're talking about. Nope. Ghosts. Does yeah. anyone have anything to say about ghosts? <laughs> I like them. <laughs> Me too. I, them. <laughs> I do think I said everything. Yes, I think I said everything I wanted to say about ghosts, but I did want to reiterate that I like them. I will say that one thing I love about the ghosts is the misdirect with the baby. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Like, when you see uh, Enola's ghost holding the baby, your first thought is Edith's first thought, which is, oh my god, it's so fucked up. Not only did they kill his wife, they killed his baby. Like, you know, like, this woman and Thomas had a baby together and they killed the baby too. Nope. (laughs) Nope. Which gets into the other thing. the, The thing that the thing that happens in this movie. The incest thing. Let's yep. just put it out there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the incest thing. This movie do we have an incest in it, though. Rejected working title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little known fact. Peter Cushing's autobiography. The incest thing. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Actually, just to briefly touch upon the ghosts again, I love the use of, like, recordings and pictures and that sort of thing to convey like exposition and i loved it so much that i stole it from my fan fiction that i (laughs) am still working on (laughs) i would actually love to talk about the uh recordings if Mm. that's cool um because it's one of those like just perfectly gothic things that Mm -hmm. guillermo has put in here um because it is essentially found footage these recordings um which is a tradition in the gothic that goes all the way back to um the very first novel that called itself a gothic novel the castle of otranto by horace walpole um it was not actually billed as a novel it was uh sold as uh this is a manuscript that we found uh, in the library of an ancient Catholic family in the north of England, and it's from Naples in the 16th century, I think. But like in its second edition, Horace Walpole was like, no, this is a book that I wrote. 
it's <laughs> it's not at all what I said it was. But like the the reason that we have this tradition of like found footage and found manuscripts and found recordings um, in the Gothic is because basically because that supernatural like elements just didn't really exist in the novel before that he needed a new way to sell this kind of story so it needed like a degree of separation from reality and the only way that he could really think of to do that was to say like this is not a story that i made up this is um something that somebody else wrote down and somebody else had it in their house and i just found it it's i have nothing to do with it so if you have problems with uh the ghosts and falling giant helmets from the sky uh that's on you and the um <laughs> monastery in naples or whatever <laughs> but like because he had to like put that degree of separation in that like that got used in the gothic works that followed it um probably most famously both frankenstein and dracula are mm -hmm. epistolary stories they're told through letters and like stories told by someone else to the narrator um and recordings in i'm pretty sure dracula has like transcripts of uh the of dr seward's recordings yep um, which then leads us to the recordings in crimson peak and i just love that through line that like Guillermo knows the gothic so well that he was like, I've got to get some found footage in this bitch. So he's got these amazing recordings. And I it's, just uh, it's it. It's interesting to me that you bring up the castle of, 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 of Otranto because I read that book in uh, a class that I took um, last year. And uh -huh. one thing about the castle of Otranto uh, that, and about gothics in general is that like, man, Gothics love big, rich, messed up families. Oh, yes. Oh, boy, do they. <laughs> messed up aristocratic families are just a staple of Gothic uh, literature and film. Yeah. And it goes back again to the, like, of Gothic being a genre that rebels against the norm. Because, you know, the story, like, you get stories about these families that are just like, oh, and they're all wonderful, and they just have little romance problems that are not very, like, worrying, really. But, like, that's all that happens. And the gothic is like, no, everyone's fucking each other, and they kill each other in secret, and, like, everything's awful. Because that's not a story that you can tell if you're trying to be mainstream. Yeah, one of the things that I see, one of my favorite books is Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. Oh, and I love Northanger Abbey. It's that to me, it cracks me up because it's like this woman who's trapped in sort of a romance novel when she, what she really wants is to be in a gothic novel. And yeah. she's dealing with kind of like, you know, normal people problems, like rich people problems. And she's just like, your dad murdered your mom. Yeah. Like, no, honey. Yeah, that was written as a, a parody of Gothic, and I and I still love it because uh, it, it feels like a loving parody. Uh, maybe that's just me reading into it. I don't really know, but I, Catherine I love... Marlin would fucking love Crimson Peak. She <laughs> would love Crimson Peak. Oh my god, I I love Catherine Moreland. She is by far my favorite Austin heroine. Sorry, Lizzie Bennet. That's tea, though. <laughs> I think one of the things, and, like, going back to what you were saying about, like, this idea of, like, um, 
the gothic as a kind of rebellious genre because of its use of you it's used that's a word <laughs> because of its use of um these sorts of aristocratic families where everything is kind of going wrong within the family unit is just mm-hmm. like yeah like with the sharps everything has gone wrong in this family right down mm-hmm. to this like it reminded me a lot of um and i'm i just keep name dropping other gothic novels but like <laughs> It reminded me a lot of the fall of the House of Usher. Yes! Where the house is literally <laughs> sinking into the ground. And it symbolizes and it symbolizes the end of this aristocratic family that had mm-hmm. to be on purpose. I know Del Toro did that on purpose, but like He 100% did it on purpose. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because I have a whole section in my notes that is just similarities between Crimson Peak and the fall of the House of Usher. It's like, and also like Lucille cracks me up too because she's Madeline Usher. If yeah. Madeline Usher had like agency, yes, yep, yes, and Instead I love of just that. Being like someone to whom things happen, yeah, that isn't like in the Gothic. You get a lot of um, heroines with agency for one, but you get a lot of like female villains with agency as well. And I love that Guillermo. I mean, he's very good with his heroines um at anyway mm-hmm. like i i love i love all of his like female protagonists they're incredible but like he's keeping that tradition in the gothic because again gothic is a genre of people on the sidelines and so there is a great tradition of like women writing in gothic but also just female characters in gothic who are like rebelling against the like restrictions on them and it's oh it's just incredible i'm it's so also, i'm so uh, glad he got to make this movie sorry i don't mean to interrupt sorry. but it's, no, it's go for also it. a genre in which uh female writers were kind of lauded um mm-hmm. especially later on and when you get into the kind of like revival of the gothic that happened in like the mid uh the mid like 1970s and 60s uh-huh. um like Gothic uh, romance paperbacks, which were usually authored by women, a lot of the um, Gothic romance paperbacks, uh, a a lot of the more prominent authors were men writing under female pseudonyms because it was sort of not really, it was considered to be like a woman's genre, the Gothic. Yeah. So like men would write these Gothics, but they would write them under female pseudonyms, which like it's always reverse in literature. Usually women writing under male pen names. So I think it's yeah. funny that the gothic is one of the only genres where men were kind of like, well, if people know I'm a man writing gothic literature, they're going to be like weirded out by that. So I'll pretend my name is Marilyn Ross. Yeah, I think that's hilarious that like gothic is pretty much, I mean, you probably get it in romance as well, but I don't, I, I am not as versed in romance literature. Um, but yeah, definitely in the gothic, you get like men writing under like feminine pseudonyms because this is not the genre for them, really. Like, yeah, I own, is- I own, I own, actually own a couple of Marilyn Ross paperbacks from the 70s, and they're, like, my prized possessions. But um, I, I forget that author's uh, real name, but, yeah, he wrote... Marilyn was actually his wife's name. I think his name was, like, John Ross or something like that. But, yeah. That sounds right. He wrote, he wrote a lot of really good, interesting gothics in the 70s under the name Marilyn Ross. Yeah. All this to say, Guillermo, if you're listening... Phantom Manor movie, please. <laughs> but hire me to write it. Yes. Please. <laughs> please, Phantom Manor movie now. <laughs> please. 
I also, one thing that I also love about this movie is the whole stuff with the clay and how that's tied into the plot. Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. I love Thomas's little doobly-doos, his, his little machines. <laughs> and I love his room of just like, oh god, when he starts saying, like, I used to make toys for, um, for Lucille when they were, when they were young. Like, number one, he's the younger brother. Um, right. So, like, the fact that from such a young age he felt the need to, like, be the one taking care of her is, like, really interesting to me from a character perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't really know, like, I, I, again, like, I don't really have smart people thoughts about it. I just think it's such, like, an interesting idea that, like, he felt the urge to kind of protect her almost when they were kids and to, like, appease her by making her things. I think it's probably something to do with because clearly there's some form of mental illness going on with Lucille. Mm-hmm. I, I think he probably developed like a protective thing about her. Po- I mean, it's possibly also just because like, even though he's younger, he is the male heir. So he has to like protect his sister, even though she's older than him. I think there also could be a measure of gratitude because it is like, stated outright that Lucille used to take beatings for Thomas and yeah, I'm sure yeah. he was aware of that at least on some level so it could have just been like his way of paying that back to her yeah their childhood was so fucked up it makes me sad <laughs> yeah Del-, Del Toro says something really really interesting in the commentary when he was talking about the parents like he was saying like there is evil in this house but the evil is not Thomas and Lucille but the sort of like shadow of Lord and Lady Sharp that yeah. still remains over this house and I oof, I love that. Yeah. I mean it it's horrible but I love it. It's such a, like again this this movie is just so textbook gothic that like mm. the sins of the past are Yes. never able to be buried they are coming up through the floorboards they are coming for you like and like another thing that do. i thought was really cool about lucille as a character was that like she refuses to let go of the way that things used to be especially with mm-hmm. her and thomas like the whole thing she doesn't want to leave the house even in the scene <laughs> that we kind of mentioned before where um edith walks in on Thomas and Lucille having sex, she's singing a lullaby that she used to sing to him when they were children. So, like, mm-hmm. even when they are, like, having sex, she still needs to hold on to this, like, at least a part of her childhood. Mm-hmm. Which is so fucked up. Like, it, it's, it's, but it's so interesting from a character perspective. Sidebar, yeah. if that is Jessica Chastain's real singing voice, she has a very pretty voice. She does. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. And, and the Gothic has a long story tradition of incest? like the hmm? Yeah. Incest? Of, yeah. Yeah. Well that and um and like the big spooky building that reflects like its inhabitants or the the state of someone of one of the characters and mm-hmm. the fact that this house is just crumbling and rotting and falling apart yeah yeah (laughs) need i say more (laughs) like we have this like stereotypical image of like the gothic ruins of a house but the reason we have that as a stereotype is because like this genre deals so much with the destruction of beautiful things and like the crumbling and 
breaking of long-held institutions that have far outlived their purpose and are just causing trouble in modern times. So much like the aristocracy, like exactly, you know, it it is kind of funny because like Edith's riches come from her father being industrious and Mm -hmm. he made his own, he, you know, you could say what you want about capitalism and like capitalism is not good, but like in terms of like, it's kind of um, interesting that like Edith's father earned his money and, Thomas and Lucille have no money, but they have a title, and all they want is that money, but they were not raised with the skills to bring themselves up out of their poverty, because they were raised, like, super rich. Yeah. That, yeah. that is, like, that's just another super gothic thing, that, like, the aristocracy doesn't have real skills. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, like, the these titled but impoverished nobles coming after, um, people who are not titled but do have money oh god i was gonna say something about lucille again and then i forgot oh oh the ending lucille's uh ending is that she gets everything that she's ever wanted (laughs) she wants to stay in the house forever (laughs) she sure does she doesn't sure does (laughs) i mean she dies but she's not really punished she gets to have what she wants she wants to Mm -hmm. be in the house while it crumbles around her and she gets it (laughs) Because her There's... ghost remains there playing the piano forever. Yeah. Good for um, her, I guess. Yeah. There's something that Guillermo says in the commentary of... Um, actually, I don't think it's in the commentary. I think it's just text in The Devil's Backbone. Um, it opens and closes with the same narration, much like Crimson Geek does. Um, and in both cases, that opening and closing narrative is about a ghost. Um, or ghosts in general. And what he says in um, in the Devil's Backbone, I've I, I can't write that fast, and I was taking like pen and paper notes. Uh, but the the main beats of the opening and closing narrative in Devil's Backbone is what is a ghost? A tragedy condemned to repeat again and again, an instant of pain, an emotion suspended in time, like an insect trapped in amber. And I think you get that idea so beautifully in crimson peak too like Mm -hmm. lucille is an emotion trapped in time and she is going to sit there at that piano even long after the piano itself has rotted away she is going to sit there and be the emotion that she is that she lived and just be that for all time because she couldn't progress past that that's why thomas when he dies gets to go i don't know somewhere after like heaven hell Mm -hmm. somewhere fucking He's not stuck on Earth. Yeah, because he so desperately wanted a future, and Lucille really didn't. This movie's sad. This movie's so sad, but it's so good. Yeah, it's it's this, the kind of sad that feels emotionally fulfilling to me, and we're just not going to read anything into that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's we're fine. just going to sad and move it's on. Fine. I'm so I'm completely adjusted and fine, and we're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so normal. This is a comfort movie for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, hey, can I just, can I pivot really quick? I just need to bring up the candle dance. Yes! Can we please bring up the candle dance? Because, oh my god! It's the sexiest thing I've seen in my life. It is! That that was the point where my sister said that this was, like, Bridgerton. So (laughs) scandalously romantic. 
Yeah, like if Ugh. you didn't if you didn't know anything else about how this movie was going to go, I can see watching that scene and being like, "Oh my god." Yes. <laughs> because like I I knew that guy was no good, but even I was like, "Oh my god, yes." <laughs> but also if someone did that to me. Yeah. I would Where's I would I candle? would follow them into the darkness. I would I would give up my wealth and whatever if somebody danced with me like that. And that scene is really interesting to me, too, because Del Toro goes on at length um, in the commentary about how he had to kind of condense Edith and Thomas's entire courtship into this one scene because he didn't have, you know, he needed to be at the house by, like, the halfway mark of the movie. Yeah. So he couldn't do a whole, like, thing. But the camera lingers so much on, like, every touch and every time, like, someone's, like, it's... mm. It is perfectly done. It does everything that scene needs to do. And it's just so sexy. It's so sexy. I don't mean to also, interrupt, but speaking of sexy, can we wait, can I just say one more thing? costumes in this movie? I need to say one more thing about the candle dance. Oh, okay. Del Toro has confirmed, yes, Tom Hiddleston and, Jess- and not Jessica Chastain, Mia Wasikowska actually did do that dance and did not have the candle flame go out once. <gasps> oh, good for them. I love that for them. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway, I uh, want to talk costumes. about the costumes. Oh. Yes. I want every single costume in this movie in my closet right now. <laughs> I simply would like to wear all of them. I, um, because I don't leave my flat anymore, uh, I was thinking I would, like, invest in some good gothic uh, loungewear. And I did manage to get myself a gothic nightgown. Uh, which is just the most fun thing ever. But I was looking everywhere. Like, sh- I was like, surely somebody has recreated Lucille's dressing gown from Crimson Peak. Like, I'm not the only person who needs to have that in my life, right? But I cannot find it affordably, which is the crux of the problem. <laughs> oh, that's so that's a, that's a hate crime. It is. But I, is do, a hate crime. I do have a nice, like, white Edith night- nightgown. So I'll take From that. the bottom of my heart, I love this for you. <laughs> Thank you. I also love this for me. <laughs> okay, let's let's go all three of us and say what our favorite costume in this movie is because I know my answer. I think Ooh. I know mine too. My favorite is the dress that Edith wears when she and Thomas get to the house for the first time with the gray and the purple flowers all over it. That's for sure my favorite. I don't know why. I just something about purple and gray is such a sexy color combination, and it's so different from anything else that Edith wears. Her outfits mm-hmm. are usually kind of gold and green. Mm-hmm. So I don't know something about it. I just maybe it's the color being different from what she usually wears. I just also think it's just a sexy outfit with like the matching hat, and I love it. It's my favorite by far. I'm gonna be extremely cliche and say that my favorite is definitely. Um, the dress that we first see Lucille in, the red one. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so sexy. And it has that, that detailing on the back that looks like a spinal cord. And it's so, oh. so gorgeous. Yes. I am stuck between that red dress of Lucille's and genuinely that dressing gown. Listen, I, yeah. <laughs> I want it and I need it and I deserve it. You do deserve <laughs> it. If there are any like people out there who are listening who do like costume design hit Rhea up (laughs) yeah I have no money but (laughs) her twitter is gonna be in the description of this podcast so like dm her make her a nightgown please please (laughs) do it for us (laughs) um 
this is just a quick sidebar before we uh, move on to something else, but I follow this person on Tumblr who talks a little bit about fashion history, and they've been recently getting into Crimson Peak. Uh, their URL is Marzipan and Minutia. Uh, I love their blog. And they did a, like, they did actually two posts talking about um, Edith and Lucille's costumes and, like, talking about which ones they liked and what were their favorites. And there's a deleted scene where uh, Lucille is wearing a corset over, like, with nothing underneath it, which if you know anything about fashion history, like, big Mm -hmm. (laughs) no-no. Corsets are scratchy. Yep. Okay, but, like, also, read that deleted scene extremely sexy so i don't care that was the first thing that she said she said like i forgive it because this is sexy but also she was like (laughs) um she was like i fully believe that uh lucille is just that much of like a freak that she was just (laughs) aware yeah i I fully believe that yeah like it's not because of historical inaccuracy it's just because lucille is a freak who likes to feel scratchy ass corset on her bare skin also can i just real quick stay on the costumes and say the detailing on this is incredible and one of my favorite little details that I found out for the commentary is that all of the Cushing's um, clothing was machine sewn and all of the like as a real part of like the costuming costume department stuff there mm-hmm. theirs was machine sewn and all the sharps was hand sewn as they historically would have been. Wow. That's, That's really interesting. I just love that. It's and the little details. Oh, this movie is so detailed, and it's it rewards anyone watching it for like all the little details in it. Mm-hmm. I want to live in that house. I don't care if it crumbles around me. I want to live in it. I was gonna say the same thing. I just cannot believe how hard this house goes off. Like the like, the hole oh in the ceiling, the hole in the ceiling with like the leaves gently falling down. Like absolutely oh. fuck off. That's the coolest thing I've seen in my life. Oh my god, when Edith gets pushed off the stairs and falls directly into the the pile of leaves on the ground. Oh my, oh god, my god, it's so good. Uh, that fall was practical by the way, and Guillermo del Toro fought for it to be practical. I mean, obviously Mia Wasikowska's on wires, but Mhm. I love every new thing that you say about Guillermo del Toro. I'm like, fucking good for him. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he worked. Just- he worked in special effects for 15 years before he started directing. So, like, whenever, like, all of the special effects in his films, he fights for them to be the way he wants them to be because he knows they can be done the way he wants to do them. I simply think we should just let this man make any movie he wants. Forever. Absolutely. Forever. Yeah. I hope he wants to make Phantom Manor. Please, Gamo, please. <laughs> You're the only one. You and Mike Flanagan. Yes. Um, can we just say, I just, I really want to get this out in the open. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is the only one who knows the truth, and the truth is that all Dothic heroines are tops. Literally, That's true. when Edith got on top of Thomas during that sex scene, I was like, fucking go, girl. Hell Yeah. <laughs> Ride your man into the sunset. Yes. Listen to me. I I have said it once, and I don't think I've said it on this podcast, but I'm gonna say it again. Gothic heroines can peg because there are, they, historians have found strap-ons from, like, dating back to the 1700s and before, so, like, they can peg. They can. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. They can do it. Sometimes I I forget that this truth is not accepted by everyone because it is just so fundamental. Because they're cowards. Because everyone's cowards. People are cowards. 
people are cowards and no no more is this more apparent than in everyone who marketed this movie. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of which, <laughs> I speaking of which we're we're we're, we're creeping up on uh the, the the time when I read out uh fun letterboxd reviews and man, sifting through some of these was a time. I'm so sorry, Taylor. You Thank literally you for- messaged me earlier today like this is depressing. So many cowards. So many. I am so sorry that you had to go through these trenches, but thank you for your sacrifice. We also, appreciate you wholeheartedly. Of, also, a lot of reviews about how they want Jessica Chastain to fuck them, which, like, valid. That's, That's valid. valid. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who also wants that. <laughs> like, half of these reviews were just like, I hated this, this was terrible, and it wasn't scary. And then the other half were like, Jessica Chastain, I'm free on Thursday. Please contact me and let's go on a date on Thursday when I'm free. <laughs> That's valid. And it's true because women being insane are hot. Anyway, mm-hmm. I do a segment on this show called Live Laugh Letterboxd where I read funny Letterboxd reviews. And this first one is from Emma who says, Just putting it out there that I would marry a hot evil aristocrat and let him steal my family fortune to build a goop mine if it meant I could wear that one dress with the velvet grapes on it. Valid. Yeah, that's true. I would would do that as well. Emma, you're correct. Mm -hmm. Former movie enjoyer. Oh no. Oh boy. Says, (laughs) Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain's dresses. Jessica Chastain's hair. Jessica Chastain yelling. Bloody Jessica Chastain. Deceitful Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain. Holy shit, Jessica Chastain. That's correct. Yep. Yep. That's I it. I just realized that two of these reviews, this second, this next review was also by former movie enjoyer. Um, <laughs> Good for them. They, mm-hmm. they, but their, their other review is just ghost titties. Ghost titties, <laughs> baby. Which is true. There are some mm-hmm. ghost titties in this movie. There sure are. Yep. This one cracked me up because, well, you'll see in a minute. Sammy says, the scene where the dead woman crawls on the floor reminded me of Eddie. And I was like, who the fuck is Eddie? So I clicked on their review and it's a link to their friend's profile. (laughs) (laughs) What an incredible call out. (laughs) Can you imagine being Eddie? (laughs) I wouldn't be able to show my face. Like, you're like, oh man, my friend posted a new Letterboxd review. Let's see what they watched. And they're just fucking fucking ghost crawling on the floor looked like you. Oh my god. Sorry to this man. Sorry, Eddie. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. Suzanne says, set design was unreal and everyone was really hot. Yep. Yep. That's That's the movie. (laughs) Chris just says, Jess freaked it. (laughs) <laughs> she sure did. <laughs> Jess did freak it. India says, me while watching this, try to think of a well thought out, interesting review about the movie and not about how hot the actors are. My brain, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, sexy gothic incest siblings. <laughs> yeah. So true, Messy. So true, Bestie. <laughs> the hipster says, Dario Argento would be so proud. Yes. Yes, okay, that scene where Edith, like, coughs blood into the sink was full-on Suspiria. That was, that was a big Suspiria moment. Yeah. And that's Live, Laugh, Letterboxd. Uh, Again, like, most of these were about Jessica Chastain being hot, and I, I get it. And they're correct. That is correct. Um, 
mentioning Dario Argento, um, <laughs> is it okay if I like say something real quick about color in this film before Please. we move on? Yes, go on because we didn't touch upon that, and it's such a huge part of this movie. Yeah, it's uh, I could I could genuinely talk another hour just about the way that Guillermo uses colors in his film in general, but also in this film. But I will just say that um, he talked about in The Devil's Backbone um, because it's a gothic that's not in a gothic setting. It's uh, set. Um, in the final days of the Spanish Civil War. And his production designer, I believe, um, was asking him, like, how are you going to do a Gothic in this setting? Like, it's this is not a Gothic setting. Like, we don't have a big Victorian mansion that's crumbling in, like, dark light. Like, what are you going to do? And he said, we're going to have Sergio Leone days and Mario Bava nights. And uh, for those unfamiliar, Sergio Leone is... Um, well, Sergio Leone, I mispronounced his name, um, is a Western uh, director, and Mario Bava does uh, Italian giallo, which is a horror genre that's uh, Italian. <laughs> um, but sure yeah, so like he he did that in The Devil's Backbone, where like the colors, like during the day you have these yellows and golds and browns, and at night you have like these blues and greens, and it gives the this like very surreal gothic lighting on the night scenes and he did that again in crimson peak but instead of nights and days it's the american part of the film is his sergio sergio leone uh mm-hmm. where he has like his golds and yellows and browns and then when we get to the traditional gothic setting we have the mario bava nights we have the like burgundy and teal and green and blue and it's just incredible and i love this for him that he got to use his favorite gothic lighting twice it's so um, gorgeous it's this so movie beautiful. is an absolute if nothing else watch this movie just for the production values because it is a fucking feast for the eyes yeah even people gorgeous. who don't like this movie are like it sucks but it's gorgeous which is like i don't respect you for disliking this movie but like at least you understand that it's gorgeous exactly all right, ratings. Five stars. Five stars. How many? Is it five stars? I'm going to give it ten. I'm going to give it ten. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, ten. Fuck it. I'm, yeah, we're going to let you do that. Yep, you can give it ten stars. I got to make up for all the people on Letterboxd who don't get it. Exactly. True. I'm also going to give it ten stars to make up for the people on Letterboxd who are cowards. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Ria. And um, thank you so much for having me. It's I, so this funny so to me fun. when, like, I was saying this to Jemmy, but like every time we have a guest on, it's like we need a smart person to cut our like weird feral energy a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we so appreciated having you on. It's an honor, honestly. I am delighted. Thank you so much for having me. If if you ever talk about the devil's backbone, bring me back. I got more to say. We have oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I I will confess now, at the very end of the episode, I I own the devil's backbone. I still haven't seen it. You gotta see it. I know, I know. I will probably watch it just like sometime this week now, because now that you've like talked about it so much, I'm like, okay, well, it's time to watch this now. It's so very excellent. Good. My plan is working. <laughs> uh ria do you have anything you want to like plug before we wrap up or um i mean i am on patreon and kofi um i you can find me on twitter um for serious uh smart person things i am vc oddly a-u-d-l-e-y 
on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, if you would like shit posts about video games, I am Yarn of Ariadne on Twitter as well. And uh, I'm just going to say real quick, I absolutely advocate for checking out Rhea's writing. She's extraordinarily talented, and I basically love everything she writes. So if you are if you love Crimson Peak, please, God, check out Rhea's writing, because it's it's just this. It's her, just this. Her gothic novella Gleam, I read in, like, a single sitting in, like, a day, and it, it like, changed me. It was so good. Oh, thank you so much. So, yeah, you guys should definitely check her writing out and follow yes. her on, on everything. And I'm not just saying this because she's written me so much Ghost Heads content <laughs> over the past year. <laughs> it was genuinely my pleasure. All right, next time... We are continuing our through line of gothic uh, films. We will be watching 1961's The Innocents. <gasps> oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that gasp. <laughs> <laughs> the Turn of the Screw um, on which that is based is one of my favorite short stories ever. Or Bitch, novellas. mine too! Oh, it's wonderful. I love The Turn of the Screw. Why do you think I picked this? <laughs> yeah. I love this for you. Have a wonderful week. I will be tuning in as soon as it is up. <laughs> Oh, for sure. For <laughs> sure. All right. Well, we are on Twitter at FGF Pod. Thank you to anyone who has followed us in the interim. Thank you to all of our, our new and old followers. Uh, drop us that five stars on Apple Podcasts if you can. Please, please, please. It helps out so much with our engagement. And we will see you next time for The Innocents. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.